We praise you, Lord. We give thanks to you, for you are good. Your loving mercy endures forever. Who can express all of your mighty deeds, O Lord, or fully declare your praise? You endowed the heart with wisdom and gave understanding to the mind. Lord, may, may the beatitudes of Christ become a reality in our life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Father, in all of this, we pray that your word would be lifted up, that we would see it clearly, that we would see it for what it is, not as we would have it to be, that we would submit our lives to your word fully, that we would do this with joy, with perseverance, with great hope, uh, that, that what you have started, you will continue and you will carry on until the day that your son returns. Be with us now. Spirit, please help us. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, uh, Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 1. If you're familiar with this gospel, then you know, you know what you're uh, in for in the, the next uh, 17 verses. All right, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azer, and Azer the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Made it through the hardest part of the sermon. <laughs> we did it. Good job. Uh, once upon a time, a long time ago, in one of my seminary classes, uh, we had a brief in-class assignment. We were all given a, a text of Scripture that, hey, read this text and read the, the tone of the text um, and make sure you capture the right emotion of the text. So one classmate was given a genealogy to read. So he read it slowly, 
He got to the end, and he just said, boring. Uh, may, maybe you think so. But, but genealogies are anything but boring. Matthew's genealogy explodes with meaning. I, I've heard it said that genealogies in ancient literature, it's like, it's like hearing a bit from a movie soundtrack. You don't have to hear the whole thing. You just have to hear like one or two notes. A lot of you, you can start, you can hear the Star Wars theme and all of a sudden the whole story comes into mind. You just need a few notes. Take your favorite theme song from a movie or show and you can, you can instantly recall the major plot points, characters, progression, themes. You don't even have to watch it. You don't even have to hear the dialogue. You just, you just listen to the music. You hear it and you know it. The same goes for genealogies. Just like musical notes, it strikes the memory chords of the mind, genealogies communicate powerful stories rapidly and effectively. Let's look at verse 1. We have promises formed. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I, I like how one theologian summarized this. He says this, Matthew 1.1 begins with the subject of the gospel, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, and transports the reader back through David, the king whose seed will reign forever by virtue of God's promise, to Abraham, the patriarch through whose faith Yahweh became the God of Israel, and through whom Israel himself arose as a fulfillment of divine promise. Indeed, he finishes with this. Indeed, it may be said that for this promise, the world itself was created. Now, the name Jesus, in those days, it was actually a very common name. It's a very common name, uh, and, and you actually know it. It's Yeshua or Joshua, and it means God saves. There's a lot of little boys running around that day and age that would have been named Joshua. Uh, in Greek, we have Jesus. It doesn't take a scholar to learn this information. You can actually just look Further on down in verse 21, it says this, Mary will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. The comparison is evident, is it not? The life of Joshua, the life of Christ. Joshua led the way for the people of God to enter the land God had promised to them. Jesus led the way for sinners to enter salvation. God's promise rests. Matthew has stitched together in, in his gospel eyewitness accounts of Jesus's actions, not all of them, uh, but the most significant ones, and his purpose here on earth. Jesus is the one true king. Like any good scholar, Matthew starts with source material. He traces the divine promise of kingship from Abraham to David to Jesus. And, and Matthew makes these, these gigantic historical leaps in order to make a theological point. If you look at verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, just because 14 plus 14 plus 14 equals 42, Matthew's not communicating 42 is the meaning of life. He's, he is not communicating uh, I really need you to grasp the fact that Abraham was, was Jesus' really, really great, great grandpa to the 40th times, right? I need you to be moved by that. Matthew is not using numbers in this way. Now, he, he is directing our attention to numbers, but he's not using them in this way. Uh, D.A. Carson states this. He says, the Greek verb translated 
was the father of, that we read many, many times over and over again a moment ago, does not require immediate relationship, but often means something like this, was the ancestor of, or was the progenitor of. Matthew's contemporaries knew what what current scholars know now. Matthew's record intentionally combined certain ages of time together in order to express a greater theological purpose, which we will come to in just a moment. So Matthew wasn't coding numbers with undiscoverable meaning, but he he was after numbers in this. Uh, The best interpretation of these 14 generations, 14 from Abraham, 14 from David, to the deportation, 14 from captivity to nativity, is this. Matthew's account of Jesus centers on a major theme that Jesus has a claim to the throne of David. At his crucifixion, what was Jesus mocked for? He was mocked for being what he was, king of the Jews. Matthew provides historical evidence for Jesus' royal descent through this opening genealogy. He's making this case. Matthew then highlights three significant events in ancient Israel's history. Abraham, starting of the nation. David, who's given the kingly promise. And the exile. As we will see, these three, they all center on the promise given to David. So so first, Abraham. Abraham was a Gentile, a non-Jew. He was a pagan. And what did he become? He became the father of the Israelite nation. Uh, around 2000 BC is when Abraham was called out of Ur and he goes into Canaan. Now, some perspective on that is, is Stonehenge was built in England around 2000 BC. It's a little while ago. Spoked wheels were invented about 100 years later in 1900 BC. So God gives Abraham a promise to make his family into a great family, a royal family, which would help other families. The, the promise is formed. The promise is formed. David. About 900 years later, since David was was one of Abraham's descendants, God reiterated the promise to him. And then in 2 Samuel 7, he added a specific promise to King David that the Messiah would come from his line and sit on his throne. The promise remains and is forever reformed to David's line. Exile. Then exile occurs in 586 B.C., The prophet Ezekiel lived and worked during this time. Uh, For for perspective on this, uh, 20 years later, uh, Gatant, the the, the Buddha guy, uh, was born in 563 BC. About 10 years later, Confucius was born in 551 BC. Uh, In exiled captivity, Israel's kingship is called into question. Where's the king? He's not on his throne. Where is he? Ezekiel watches the cloud of glory leave the temple. <laughs> Instead of marching into the promised land guided by God's mighty cloud, the very appearance of his shrouded presence, they march into the formless void of exile, guided by pagans, but ultimately by God's invisible hand. So you have Abraham, David, exile. Abraham, the promise is formed, 14 generations pass. David, the promise is reformed and 14 ages pass. In exile, the promise is, is formless. I'm not sure where it is. And there are still 14 ages that passed until Christ. Verse, verse 6, look in verse 6 with me. 
promises reformed. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. The ancients heard this, Jesse, the father of David, the king, and they knew what it meant. 2 Samuel 7, the divine promise built on the existing promise. God promised that David's throne would have no end. And here's where the three sets of 14 genealogies in verse 17 begin to express meaning to us, okay? You have to bear with me a little bit on, on this because uh, there's a tiny little bit of, a, a bit of math. Uh, the name David in Hebrew was originally just written with consonants, as all of Hebrew was. Now, there's the, the Dalit, a Vav, and then a Dalit. So a D, a W, and a D is how it would have been written out. And now ancient Hebrew letters corresponded with numbers. This was just a common thing. It wasn't some, it wasn't some strange coded thing. It was just a common practice. So D would equal four. The Vav or the W would equal six. And then the other D would equal four. Added together, we get 14. Four plus six plus four is 14. Matthew intentionally centers his genealogy on God's promise to David. He's grounding his theology in history. Matthew intentionally repeated this three sets of 14 generation. It's, it's like he's saying, David, 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 three times over and over again. Why? It's not because David was wonderful. If you've, if you've been with us, we've been in 2 Samuel, and you know David was not a wonderful guy. Uh, it, it, why? Because the fulfillment of God's promise to David would mean the revealing of God's Messiah. That's, that's why. Abraham's descendants would grow to bless the world with God's glory. David's descendant would grow to reign over that world for God's glory. The promise to Abraham was formed. The promise extended to David was reformed. But then, but then as the author this morning points out to us, all that is called into question. Verses 11 through 12. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Jeconiah is listed twice here. He's also known as Jehoiakim, and he was Israel's last king to sit on the throne. He had some other rulers down the line, but he was the last one to sit on the throne in Israel. He reigned only three months and 10 days until Israel fell into Nebuchadnezzar's hand and Israel was forced into exile. Uh, we see that Jeconiah was cursed by God. Jeremiah said this of him, thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So that's not good. There's a curse on the line of David. It's a prohibition. No ruling or reigning for Jehoiakim's offspring. And yet, he's listed here twice in David's line. I would have liked to have skipped over that part because it would have been easier to explain what's going on. But he, he lists it twice because he knows what it means. He's listed twice in David's line, which was promised the royal line forever. But there's a curse on it. Jeconiah reigns all, all 100 days, and then there's no king to sit on David's throne, only a king's curse. To make matters worse, right? They're going into exile. 
the events surrounding the curse, Babylonian captivity. The people of God are led out of the very land that God promised to bring them to and keep them in if they would only trust him. While facing exile with Israel, the prophet Ezekiel watched as God's glory left the temple. This is significant. This is recorded in Ezekiel 10. The the, the very cloud that blocked Pharaoh's armies from slaughtering all of the rest of the Hebrew people, this cloud shrouding God's presence with his people that was then present in the temple, showing them that God was with them, it departed when the Israelites departed into exile. So So we're in exile. Israel has two dilemmas curse and the cloud is the promise lost the curse what what king would ever reign on David's forever throne knowing that it's a throne that's been cursed the line has been cursed the cloud will God ever dwell with his people again and Matthew's answer to this dilemma is it's clear it's clear it's God's Messiah He tells this to us in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. By recalling Abraham and David, Matthew recalls God's promises. By tracing the promise down the king's family tree, Matthew shows us that that Jesus is in legal line to sit on the throne. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Mary is one of five women listed in this lineage. It's a very unusual feature in uh, ancient ancestry. Uh, From verse 16 to the end of Matthew 1, we see that Joseph adopted Jesus into this kingly legal line. And and what what a line it has been. What what a line it has been. Abraham, you have the patriarch, a man of faith. But what, what was he also? He lied. He was a liar. He was a polygamous patriarch still acting in some of his old pagan ways, go to David, Israel's first good king. But, but what does he do? He sins. He's a murderer, an adulterer. You have five women that appear in this genealogy, in this lineage, most of whom started out as Gentiles like Abraham, and they were involved in scandal, sometimes, oftentimes, sexual scandal, at least questionable scandal, like Abraham and David. Look in Matthew 1, verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Who is Tamar? Well, t- long story short, Tamar committed incest with her father under the guise of prostitution. Uh, it doesn't really get worse than that. That's pretty bad. Speaking of prostitution, Rahab the prostitute is next in line. Matthew 1, 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Rahab was selling herself in Jericho until she feared God. And fled from her sin. Next we have Ruth, a Moabite, Matthew 1, 5. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Now, now while Ruth herself was not scandalous, she was surrounded by it. She was a Moabite. People known for their sexual immorality. Sworn enemies of Israel. A questionable lineage. The fourth woman is found in Matthew 1, 5 through 6. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. 
It's interesting. You don't actually have to mention her name. You just know who it is. You know it's Bathsheba. Matthew's statement, the wife of Uriah, it doesn't just note the sexual immorality of David. It also refers to the ordering of Uriah's death. David has sex with Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. David has her husband killed. This is not a great lineup. These are grotesque scandals. It seems like this lineage isn't propelled by, by promise. It's propelled by promiscuity. One scholar sums up these stories. The only factor that clearly applies to all four is that suspicions of illegitimacy surrounded their sexual activity and childbearing. The suspicion of illegitimacy fits perfectly with that which surrounded Mary. Did it not, for those of us that know the Christmas story? Matthew makes the case. If you think the virgin birth of Jesus is a questionable event, just look at, just look at all the names I just wrote down for you. It's truly questionable before the time of Christ. And, and then the one, the one time where it seems, it seems to come into question, it seems illegitimate, is the one time where it is fully legitimate. Well, before we wrap up the, these questionable circumstances, the, the curses, uh, kings, I, I, want, I want to give a word to the non-Christian who is here. Now, non-Christian, when you, when you read these very foreign names, um, that's where I insert a joke about, like, if you're having a baby, then you should name your kid this, uh, this, this name. Here's some baby names. And I was listening to some sermons on this. That's what, that's what I kept hearing, and I was like, I've got to use that. So there it is. There it is. Um, if you read these foreign names, let your mind wander in this direction, okay? If God could redeem these people in these situations, this is what you should be thinking, right? I just want to make this strong recommendation to you. If God could redeem these people in these situations, maybe he could redeem me too. Well, you say, that, that was just then. God doesn't know my situation now. He doesn't know my past. He doesn't know what I've done. Matthew, the writer of this gospel, might have thought the same thing. I, I think he did. He, he's the writer of this gospel eyewitness account of Jesus, and he outs himself. He must have felt similarly. He was a tax collector. Uh, tax collectors aren't, aren't like really well respected nowadays. They definitely weren't back then. Uh, he only knew other corrupt people. That's what Matthew confesses later in his writing. Chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees, the religious leaders, saw this, they asked the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So, so non-Christian, I, I want to be absolutely clear with you today. Today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. There are no guarantees and do not sit by on this revelation with, with indifference, as if that could buy you time. A former pastor said this, loving the truth is a matter of perishing or being saved. Indifference to the truth is a mark 
of spiritual death. Sinner, coming to Christ is not complicated. It does not require high intellect or a good, clean life. Coming to Christ is not complicated. What did Matthew do? He got up and he followed Jesus. Get up and follow Jesus. Show him your sickness. Show him your sin. All of it. Do not withhold a thing. He's not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Are you a sinner? Then get up and follow Jesus. He came into this world to save people like you. How do we know this? Well, the word of God, the word of God reveals all things to us. Matthew 1, 18 reveals this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying this, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. For the saints. And here, here in him, in Christ, we have the answer to our questions, do we not? Who will lift the curse on the king's line? Will God again dwell with us? Now, Christian, in Galatians, you, you know what it says. We are told Jesus became a curse for us. It's not merely that Jesus reverses the curse. He certainly does that. But he overcomes the curse by fully taking it on. By absorbing the wrath of God due to the cursed ones. And, and furthermore, furthermore, the virgin birth it does something amazing. It does something amazing with the, the uh, Jeconiah issue. It usurps the curse of the alleged last king of Israel, King Jeconiah. No king from Jeconiah's offspring would sit on David's throne again. Something must be done. But Jesus was not born of an earthly father. Jesus was in the legal line of kings, and he was legally adopted by Joseph. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He met the legal requirements through legal adoption. He was in David's lineage, and yet not an offspring of the king's curse. Do you see this? This is vital. Christian, do you see the meticulous detail that our father went in order to bring us to himself? What's stopping you from seeing his gracious hands in every, in every fair or foul situation in your life. Ezekiel watched the glory of God depart the temple. He marched into exile, leaving the temple behind. But what was unknown to them has become known to us. Will God again dwell with his people? 
Christian, praise the Lord. Because of God's great love, we have the answer. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He is our king. One day he will return. Let us pray. Lord, those who love you will keep your word, and your Father will love them, and you and your Father will come to them and make your home with them. If we serve you, we must follow you, and where you are, we also will be. If we serve you, the Father will honor us. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. Father, help us to rest in your shadow. You are the most high God. We will be kept safe by you, for you are the mighty one. We will say of you, you are my refuge and my fortress, O Lord. You are God in whom we trust. Lord, you are the one who gives endurance and encouragement. Grant that we be of the same mind toward one another, according to your Son, so that with one accord, and one mouth we may glorify you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May you, the God of peace, sanctify us completely. May our whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You, Lord, who calls us, are faithful. You will do this. For your Son has come, he has died, he has risen again for us, and he will come again. Amen.